0: I don't, does anyone remember when they had that guest preacher who was a couple years ago in, in the night home room, and he was like shouting at the top of his lungs, and I was trying to, I was trying to talk. So I feel like if I've gotten through that, I can get through this. Um, so I'm gonna do something a little unusual. I'm just gonna go ahead and pray, and then we're gonna, we're gonna go ahead and start that way. Father, this is extremely distracting. I can already tell. Um, I pray that you would be with the students. You'd be with me as we try to focus in on what's being said. Um, I pray that you would um, maybe be with the sound over there, that it would turn down a little bit, um, or at least that we'd start to phase it out. Uh, I pray that you would be um, with our time together, um, that that take five would be take 30 minutes, and uh, that you would um, just really still my heart Still our hearts, help us to see you even in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, well, because I dare to care, uh, happy Valentine's Day. So, I know, I know. Are we knee-deep in pink hearts, be mine teddy bears, sheep chocolates yet? Anybody? Um, for those who don't know me, uh, hello, my name is Sid Druin, and I'm a recovering Valentine's Day cynic. Um... <laughs> I'm now married, I can't get away with that too badly. But um, I'm also the campus minister for RUF Reform University Fellowship. Um, and I guess that's a live band behind us. So RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists for you all, wherever you are, whoever you are. We're glad you're here. Um, and I'm gonna skip a lot of other things just to say, we're really glad no matter what space you're coming from, whether it's on campus or personal background or belief, however we'll we feel about Jesus. And Christianity we're glad no matter where you are with all of those things that you're here so thanks for that and uh, thanks for taking the time if you're new to come and see what we're all about so thanks for that all right so this semester in large group we're looking at the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs and we've been studying these books together because they they together teach us how to process life that is how do we handle our emotions how do we treat our relationships how do we make decisions and how do we live more fully, more humanly, more humanely in this world, um, in the here and now? And that's really what these, these are at pages to talk about. And along these lines, my title and summary for the semester uh, for the large group goes like this. Sorting life, praying our emotions to God, and applying God's wisdom to our decisions, our relationships, and ourselves. So we're talking about sorting life, basically. Um, First, we're looking at, because of like two mini-series, one on Psalms and one on Proverbs, we're looking at the topics of emotion and prayer first. For the first kind of rough half of the semester, we're in the middle of that. Um, And I'm really going to say, like, I'd encourage you to actually try to pray the Psalms uh, with your emotions, to pray your emotions to God through the Psalms. And to help you do that, I don't know, Rachel, did you put that back there? There's a handout on the snacks table. Um, You know, you don't need to get up all at once to get it. but. Um, basically, it's this guide on the back table to kind of match um, match the emotions to your psalms on the front side. So some of you would ask, "How do I? Well, what psalms do I use to pray my emotions?" So I put an emotion on the left side, give you a bunch of psalms that reference that emotion on the right, and then on the back side, um, I've given you some tips about how to pray the psalms directly. Uh, just little things like changing the Lord or God to you, um, and also. Um, thinking about there's also some reflection meditation questions in the back there's a lot of them so just be feel free to just take a few of them and try to practice them if you'd like to meditate on scripture a little bit so um, but we're really continuing our semester study of Psalms we've looked at happiness we've looked at fear we've looked at anger and now we're looking at gratitude okay so I'm gonna shift gears again um, let's just try to think about how do we connect those grateful parts of us those grateful moments to god okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and start i prayed earlier i usually pray at this point um but here we go so i am just gonna say this like i often feel very defeated by the cultural idea of gratitude okay i feel i feel done before i start like whether it's social media or family or friends Gratitude can feel a lot like Valentine's Day, can it? Here, let me let me go. Okay, I'm sure people do actually enjoy the holiday, <laughs> but most of us, I personally, just feel mostly guilty and cynical about Valentine's Day. Uh, and let me kind of continue to s- try to step over that soapbox, uh, that potentially offensive soapbox, and just talk about gratitude, not Valentine's Day. And say, I often I oftentimes feel like gratitude can give these mixed feelings of joy, but also guilt. And cynicism and like it really comes from these well-meaning pushes for gratitude in the face of disappointment who here hasn't gotten the advice gratitude right the gratitude that goes count your blessings or the gratitude that sort of subtweets your problems by saying hashtag first world problems right that's sort of what we think of gratitude as or maybe it's like it's just like as if sadness is like illegitimate because you have more blessings than a generally poor second world Soviet citizen or third world non-NATO, non-Warsaw pact citizen. All right, can we just go undo that tag? Why are we still using that tag? <laughs> Why are we still talking about the first world? Uh, first world, by the way, is a Cold War term. We're in the 21st century now. So I did actually look this up. I Googled this, there is a tag. Hashtag developed nation problem. So that's true. It does exist. So I'm glad we're in the 21st century. Anyway, I couldn't avoid stabbing on that soapbox. But here's the point. Like the point is that we kind of are always undercutting our sadness by talking about counting blessings or talking about um, basically first world or developed nation problems. Okay? But I want to see how the Bible pushes against this cultural notion of how gratitude should work how we should all over ourselves with gratitude. Sadness is actually not pitted against gratitude in the scriptures. Honestly expressing sadness, what's called lament in the Bible, actually leads to gratitude. Because God like in Psalms like 65 is actually answering and honoring our sadness. In in Psalms like 65. So you see like gratitude like sadness is actually this holy emotion, not to be pitted against each other. They're both personal and they're both directed towards somebody. We cry out against something to God, that's sadness, right? Or we thank God for the way things are, that's gratitude. I love this idea, it's a very personal emotion. In the words of Cornelius Plantinga, to be thankful to no one in particular or to be thankful just in general is like being married to no one in particular or to be married just in general you kind of get the idea it's a very personal emotion just like sadness um, so again in addition to the culture kind of saying we should um, gratitude and we kind of pit that kind of impersonal gratitude against an impersonal sadness I think there's a second misunderstanding culturally about gratitude okay, the second misunderstanding about gratitude is that you can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude, okay? The second misunderstanding culture is you can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude, okay? Brene Brown just brilliantly illustrates this, okay? That's almost a direct quote from her. She illustrates how strange it is that we think we can consistently feel gratitude without actually practicing it, okay? She compares her gratitude attitude to her yoga attitude, okay? So Brene Brown talks about she owes all the yoga gear, Right, She like lives, sleeps, works, hangs out in her house in yoga pants. She actually wears yoga shoes, I didn't even know they had yoga shoes, but apparently they do and she wears them. And she actually owns a yoga mat somewhere in her house. But she wouldn't dare publicly ever do yoga because her yoga attitude would only get her so far in actually practicing yoga. She doesn't actually practice yoga, she just has the yoga gear, she just has the yoga mindset. And so she, if she tried to do downward dog publicly, would fail and fall. Okay? So there's a sense in which some of us have that with gratitude. And Psalm 65, again, combats this cultural idea that gratitude is just pure attitude. Okay? It's not just a mindset. Instead, it provides us with a template to practice the emotion of gratitude. Psalm 65 gives us these existential categories that are going right in the world. Psalm 65 gives us these areas of abounding beauty that we can pray back to God, to thank him, to say, how good of God to give me even this. So in a sentence or two, all that's to say, Psalm 65 corrects our misunderstandings of gratitude, and it directs our emotional practice. Okay, So it corrects misunderstandings, directs our emotional practice. And the Psalm does this by inviting us to thank God for his stunning salvation, okay? Three ways, thank God for his stunning salvation, thank God for his comprehensive creation, and thank God for his plentiful providence. And those are, by the way, in the outline of your handout. So we're gonna look at stunning salvation, comprehensive creation, and plentiful providence. And I just wanna say like a side note, I realize that like salvation, creation, and providence are very churchy words. Okay. There are words that we oftentimes use and too often don't define, or at least well. And I hope that this psalms can going to actually give you a rich definition of that. So I'm going to hold off on defining them until we go through the different sections of the psalm. And as you can imagine, these three points line up in our psalm. And by your outline you see this, that basically God's stunning salvation, his comprehensive creation, and his plentiful providence are three reasons the psalmist David prays gratitude. Okay, and there are also three reasons we can feel more grateful. And that's sort of the, the exercise that we get to embark on together. Okay, so verses 1 through 5, studying salvation of God. 6 through 8, contours of God's comprehensive creation. And verses 9 through 13, um, God's plentiful providence. So that's where we're going. Is everyone kind of following that um, set to jazz music? So let's begin with the beginning, verses 1 through 5. Uh, or Psalm, and we're going to look at God's stunning salvation. So, look with me at verses one through five, and you can actually just pause at verse one, because before Psalm 65 tells us what about salvation to think, it tells us how to think. Okay, look at the look at the translation of the very first section of verse one. It says, "Praise is due to you, O God. Praise is due to you, O God." Am I in this sometimes yeah okay that's what I was wondering okay so but actually I think praise to you to you is due, oh god is actually not a very good translation most Hebrew scholars actually think it's more literally the Hebrew roots to you O oh god silence is praise to you oh god silence is praise that's a better translation of verse one and here's what I think is so counterintuitive about that we often think of prayer as speaking Whether it's praise or thanksgiving, we think that we're like silently in our head speaking or out loud in a group or to the ceiling speaking to God. And really the Psalm starts by giving us pause to think that it might be silence. That what if there's a suggested awe here, to fall silent, to be still, to recognize who God is, that God's presence, God's goodness, God's will are beyond our words to describe. From the get-go then, feeling gratitude requires a patient silence on the one hand, and then also a personal humility. So everyone tracking, patient silence, personal humility. And if we're honest, those things are actually so difficult. I mean, my kids and my wife were not here this weekend. It was like torture not to look at my phone all the time, okay, or to, to listen or play something or watch something, okay, but also personal humility is hard. And so why are they so hard? What are we missing? I'm going to go a little literary, then we're going to come back to the song. Okay? There's a short story by Wendell Berry called Dismemberment. Okay? Dismemberment. Wendell Berry's a poet farmer, and he describes the challenges and benefits of quiet gratitude really beautifully. He's got this main character. And if you're familiar with Wendell Berry's fiction, you'll recognize Andy Catlett. Andy Catlett's like a young Wendell Berry, okay? sort of autobiographical character. And in, his, in this case, this is not true to life, but Andy Catlett's lost his hand in a corn picker. Okay, he's completely lost his hand. And Andy is wrestling out loud with his loss and the fact that he now owns part of his body as a prosthetic artificial hand. Okay? And if you know Wendell Berry, that drives him nuts. He hates everything that's artificial. Okay? And so Andy is wrestling with this, and, write, and Wendell Berry helpfully writes his thoughts out loud. Okay? The last 40 years he spent, before he lost his hand, he starts to really contemplate and think about it. Does that make sense? So he's having this moment where he's reflecting. This is what Wendell Berry says. And so he, Andy, is continually reminded of his incompleteness within within himself. He's reminded of his native imperfection as a human being, his failure to be as attentive or responsible or grateful or loving and happy as he ought to be. He has spent most of his life opposing violence and waste and destruction, or trying to. His opposition's always fragmented and made painful by complicity in what he opposes. So he's struggling with who he is, right? He's confessing, he's being humble about the fact that he feels like he struggles to be all of these emotions he wants to be. But on the other hand, he also feels, even when he's opposing something, he feels fragmented and complicit in the very thing he opposes. Even though those things that are, real, are really good things, like he's opposing violence and waste and destruction. Okay, but look at this. He shifts from this humble self-reflection that I think we can all relate to, at least I can, to a quiet sort of gratitude. He, Andy, seems to be true, most authentically himself, only when he's sitting still. In one of the places in the woods or on the height of a ground that invites him to come and rest, where he goes to sit, wait, and do nothing, oppose nothing, put words to no argument. He permits no commotion by making none. By keeping still, by doing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. Did you hear that? He allows by being still, by doing nothing, by opposing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. Through Andy Catlett, Wendell Berry is pointing out two truths in line with the first things of the psalm that we're looking at, okay? First, it's a pretty obvious takeaway, we need to be still. Okay, we need to still our opposing, even of bad things, in order to recognize what we miss, the thing that's out there everywhere, Gratitude, In Barry's words, the, the given world is a gift. We forget that. We miss that by not being still. Okay? And that's what verse 1 picks up. To you, O God, silence. Stillness is praise. Okay? The second truth of Psalm 65, uh, and this scene reinforces it, is this. Gratitude often begins with difficult but honest truths. Okay? Gratitude often begins with difficult but honest truths. And I'm going to summarize them by this phrase: I don't deserve. It's a difficult but honest truth. I don't deserve. So, like, listen to the way that Barry describes it, right? He said he he describes Andy's sentiments, his feelings, in all too familiar language. He feels incomplete. He feels like a failure. He feels fragmentation. He feels complicity in what he opposes. Our psalm describes this self-awareness, this I don't deserve, and less familiar, at least at first, language. Okay, look at verses three and four with me. The psalmist describes his own iniquities and his own transgressions, okay? In the Hebrew, iniquities has this idea of twisting in on oneself, okay? And then in the Hebrew, the transgressions is sense of estrangement from relating to God. And so basically, there's this plea within the psalm, in verse three in particular, that he needs God to atone for him. In other words, God needs to bring David, the psalmist, to God's courts, into God's very presence. He can't do it on his own because he's so twisted up in himself. He's so estranged from God for various reasons, Okay. And this is actually our story and our need as well. It's hard to not think that we're deservers, isn't it? We think we're deservers. I do. In fact, the more often I oppose violence and waste and destruction, the more I keep the rules, the more I do the right thing. The more I keep my promises, the more I think I deserve what I want. The more I do those things, the more I deserve better than I have. Or so I think in my mind. But what's so amazing is the very thing that we're supposed to be grateful for, salvation. Salvation is the very thing that makes us grateful. It's amazing. It us up to finally be grateful. Salvation is at the very least this phrase. Jesus saves me from my prison of entitlement. The very least it says, Jesus saves me from my prison of entitlement. Verse four, listen to the way that he talks about this. God chooses and brings us near. He satisfies us with his goodness and his holiness. Verse five, God answers us by his awesome deeds. He answers us by his righteousness. But how do we dwell in God's courts? How does all this stuff work? How are we satisfied with the goodness of God's house? right? Those seem very remote concepts to us. What about this holiness of God's temple? How do we even access that? What does that mean? I love the way that Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10 kind of helps us understand this. You see, Jesus' blood has given us the confidence to enter into God's holiness. Jesus' flesh has opened up a new and living way for us to live, to enter into the living temple, the heavenly temple, the heavenly presence of God. Jesus has tenderly and painstakingly, according to Hebrews chapter 10, he's washed our bodies and our consciences clean so that we can dwell at one, at one atonement with God. And these are just like a few sites from the country of salvation. Too often we take salvation, we make it a password or a byword. It's actually sort of a trip. It's a land that we get to visit. And those are just a few of the sites but notice what paying attention to and buying into Jesus actually does to our hearts. Okay, so here's the takeaway. As you buy into some of that, whatever degree you are, it feels vulnerable, doesn't it? It feels really vulnerable to concede our guilt. It feels really vulnerable to receive forgiveness from outside of ourselves. Think about that posture, but feel what happens when we start to do what these verses are talking about. We go from deservers to receivers. We go from deservers to receivers. We go from one up over everyone to one down to God. We go from holding the center of a spinning merit-based universe together to a charity case. Who gets to freely feast with Jesus in the now thoroughly International House of Zion. This is because God's hopeful and welcome presence extends this party, this feast, to people like us, to the very ends of the earth and the farthest seas, according to verse 5. So is that kind of starting to make sense? That's the shift that starts to happen. But I really like, listen to the way that G.K. Chesterton describes the joyful feeling underneath gratitude, the joyful feeling at the center of honest humility. He says it this way. This is how humility frees us up joy. Ready? We must certainly be in a novel, G.K. Chesterton writes. What I like about this novelist is that he takes such trouble about his minor characters. Okay, we must certainly be in a novel. What I love about this novelist, that's God, is that he takes such trouble with his minor characters. Or listen to the way that Chesterton Chesterton describes a fellow writer, Robert Louis Stevenson, who has a profoundly religious temperament. Listen to the way he describes it. Stevenson conceived of himself as an unimportant guest at one eternal and uproarious banquet. Okay, Stevenson conceived of himself as an unimportant guest at one eternal and uproarious banquet. Do you start to get what gratitude does, that shift that happens? What would it look like for us to see God as a careful writer of every story? What would it look like for us to see salvation as a far-flung banquet? that's uproarious, that we're caught in the midst of. I think that's starting to get at the feel of what gratitude is. That's what gratitude feels like. But even as verse 5 offers that worldwide description of God's splendid salvation, verse 6 pivots our gratitude towards the world itself. Do you see that? So we're looking at worldwide salvation then we pivot towards the world itself. And that's point 2, God's comprehensive creation, verses 6 through 8. Look at Psalm 65. Psalm 65 begins to describe the world as creation by emphasizing God's involvement in the powerful and expansive details. Verses six and seven display God's power. Look, God is belted or girded with strength and he securely sets the mountains. He calms the wild waves, he stills the seas, and he places every human at peace or any kind of human peace there is, he's situated, okay? In the beginning of everything, God made all things exist. And I want you to understand this. Even things like mountains did not have to exist. And he ordered disordered seas by his very character. They did not have to be ordered. Verse 8 tells us this power extends as a sign to the ends of the earth and includes the easternmost sunrise and the westernmost sunset of the horizon. But can I, can, like, are you? if you're a scientist, a science major, maybe you're feeling a little antsy at this point. Like, maybe this feels a little bit uncomfortable. Like, maybe someone has a sound objective. Like, that's not how mountains are formed, right? Uh, where are the mention of tectonic plates or hardening magma? And the seas seem still like they kind of roar to me, Sid, like there seems to be some waves still going on. Well, let me just say this. I think psalms are poetry, OK? we haven't studied a ton of poetry together, but that means that they're still describing true reality, but they're doing so in an artistic way, okay? They're not attempting to be a science textbook. And sometimes we have the standards of a science textbook that we replace onto 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 the Bible. The Psalms are not contending it's either tectonic plates or it's God in a weightlifting belt. It's not saying it's either or, okay? Rather, they're actually saying the cause of the world The primary cause is God, and the secondary causes he uses, perhaps, are shifting tectonic plates and volcanic magma to make the mountains. It's it's giving us levels of causation by describing the first cause of God. So here's my premise. What if there's a both-and to the way that creation works? What if there's a both-and of the Psalm 65 and science? Okay. So, like, maybe you don't believe me. Let me put let me put C.S. Lewis to, to bat for me, okay? He has a beautiful way of describing this. He put the issue well one time. He said, you can explain why a teapot is boiling in two reasonable and equally valid ways. Okay? It's boiling due to thermodynamics of heat and the production of energy. And it's boiling because Mrs. Lewis wants a cup of tea. <laughs> equally valid, equally descriptive. Okay, but we automatically remove one of those descriptions of why things happen or the way they happen. It's interesting, isn't it? And I actually would say we need the creative description of reality of Psalm 65. We need to re-enchant reality a little bit, don't we? Okay, too often, like these really great advances in technology and science can be used poorly. We can use them poorly to crowd out God. Using God only kind of starts to explain what we can't explain, what we don't understand. It becomes sort of a god of the gaps. Or God becomes this sort of God of the spare tire. Okay, we, we invoke God when we, we need help, when we can't manage things on our own and we need some help as a human species or as individuals. But the God of Psalm 65, the God of the Bible, the God of reality is much bigger and he's actually much more involved than those two ideas. And best the best way to describe this maybe is by giving us um, – two depictions of how the created world, okay? And they're written at roughly the same time, and I'm gonna give you two depictions of the created world and how it works, okay? And I want you to see sort of what the feeling of gratitude would look like. So here's my little sample, writing samples, roughly the same period of time. Here's the first depiction, It's, it's influenced historically by the scientist Francis Bacon, and his view that the world is just a lifeless tool for my individual disposal to do what I want to do with it, okay? Here it is, ready? If there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzy noise. And the only reason for making a buzzy noise that I know of is because you're a bee. Then he thought another long time and said, and the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And then he got up and said, and the only reason for making honey is so I can eat it. That's, of course, A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh, OK? <laughs> Literary <laughs> classic. I'm stacking the deck, of course. Um, but it's a serious satire of how egotistically we view the universe, right? Everything exists for my pleasure. So the posture and the practice of gratitude becomes that of a consumer, right? Practical, at all costs, self-centered. But here's a second depiction influenced by Christianity the view of God's mighty caretaking like in verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 65. Listen to this. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles and all stipple upon the trout that swim, fresh fire cold chestnut falls, finches win wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold fallow and plow, and all the trades, their gear and tackle and trim, All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, adazzled, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. This depiction of reality, even though roughly the same length as our first from A. A. Milne, is from a Jesuit priest and poet named Gerard Manley Hopkins, and Pied Beauty is the poem. So if the world is charged with grandeur, notice our posture and our practice of gratitude change. It becomes not consumerism, but wonder. It becomes the sense of fun and mystery, not at ourselves and what we can glean, but at another. So look, if gratitude at salvation reconnects us to God, this kind of gratitude, Hopkins kind of feeling gratitude at connection, reconnects us to the world around us in an intimate way, in a friendship sort of way. Because Hopkins believes, just like the Christian believes, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, Colossians 1.16. Or to quote Hopkins again, all things were created for Christ's plays in 10,000 places. Does this kind of make sense? Are we tracking? Okay. That actually works really well with the jazz music. I'm just going to take a time out there. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to quote Gerard Melly Hopkins at length, and it might kind of fit the, the beat behind us. Okay, kidding aside, the posture and practice of gratitude kind of leads us to God's plentiful providence. Okay, point three, verses nine through 13. We're rounding the corner, okay? It builds on thanking God for his stunning salvation. It builds on thanking God for his comprehensive creation. It builds on that quiet humility of verses one through five, and it builds on that wondrous fun and mystery at work in verses 6 through 8. Notice the shift in verse 9, and this is so beautiful. It shifts away from mountains and seas and horizons, and it moves towards everyday seemingly natural events, right? Psalm 65 recategorizes ordinary natural occurrences as providence, okay? It reveals God's involvement yet again, but this time notice God's involvement. It's with abandon and abundance, okay? It's with abandon and abundance. Look at verses nine through 10. The psalmist David is crediting God with watering by rain and river, fertilizing in furrows and ridges, and growing grain in preparation and blessing. But even here, God's, David's gratitude cannot help itself. The Hebrew word for water in verses nine through 10 actually means to make overflow, He's watering so much that the banks of the river are exceeded, that the ground is saturated. And then look, God's plenty, his bounty, his overabundance surges in verses 11 through 13. The spring and the summer's produce becomes a crowning touch. The wagon tracks, literally in the Hebrew, drip fatness. And the pastures, the hills, and the meadows and the valleys irrepressibly conspire to play dress-up. And their finest clothes a belt of joy, a frock of flocks, a coarse coat of wheat, and they shout and sing together for joy. Perhaps a reference back to verse 4, the free feasting and merrymaking that happens in the presence of God and his house. But like certainly, whether that reference is true or not, verses 9 through 13 tell us this. It's an important fact about God. God is not cheap. Do you see how uncheap God is? Do you know how extravagant God is? He spares no expense. He goes well beyond usefulness and into beauty. God is also not cautious. He goes well beyond efficiency and into excess. Look again at verse 12. The Hebrew word here that we see a translation of pasture actually means something more like desert grasslands or wilderness. Okay? So think about what's going on here. God is not just producing plants like grain that's useful for human beings to eat. He's getting beyond utility. God is c- clothing a wasteland drainage ditch, uh, a, a Middle Eastern wadi with fragrant flowers. God is crowning a barren hilltop with a wreath of eye-catching wild blossoms. The plants on these terrains are not useful at all for human beings to live. Do you get that? They are pleasurable for human beings to sense and ultimately to worship God. You see, gratitude begins with God providing utilities like food, but gratitude does not properly end until it thanks God for beauty and goodness. According to C.S. Lewis, where gratitude ends even... Adoration or praise begins. So, allow me to end by quoting C.S. Lewis in full from Letters to Malcolm, okay, which is chiefly on prayer. Okay. This is about C.S. Lewis puts it to Malcolm about prayer. This is his own devotional life. I have tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks for pleasures, but I mean something different. How should I put it? When we experience a pleasure like a bird's song or the roaring of a wind, we ought to receive it and recognize its divine source as a single experience. Receive and recognize it simultaneously. This heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the heavenly orchard where it grew. The sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need to be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event. Something done afterwards to experience the tiny manifestations of God's presence is itself to actually adore. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of a being whose far off and momentary glintings are like this? one's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. That is, look, gratitude is this feeling, it's a posture, it's a movement that steps back and proclaims how good of God to give me things like food and beauty. But in the same breath, it's praise. How much better is the God who gives such good things? How good is the sunbeam? How much greater is the sun? Look, we're gonna talk more about praise. We're gonna talk more about the emotion of joy next week. But would you join me right now in practicing the feel of gratitude by praying one more time together? Father, uh, I'm really I'm thankful for the attention that we were, that was paid here and it's, it's a hard venue. Um, I, I praise you. I thank you for this rich passage a passage we could spend months in, days in, years in. And I pray that it would be a passage that we think about when we we step out outdoors. I pray that we think about the lavishness of your care. Thank you that you don't spare expense. Thank you that you're not into utility, productivity, and efficiency. Thank you that you are a God of extravagance, that you're a prodigal God, that you care about us in such intricate and infinite ways. Thank you for all the things you're doing in our lives, no matter where we are with you. The things we get to enjoy in common and the things that we get to rejoice in individually. Praise to you. Thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.